listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. And for the first time in a little while, I am not joined by Henry. Henry has somehow managed to escape the UK, although he didn't actually know whether he was leaving the UK until a day ago and has ended up in an entirely different country to the one that he was planning on being in. Fortunately, I have a friend who steps into the ranks. It's Patrick. Patrick's back. How are you doing, Pat? I'm good, thank you. Glad to be back. Good, good. So we had originally planned on recording with you within a week or two of of the last episode, but uh, that just didn't seem to happen. We didn't manage to get everyone in the same room. So when when Henry bailed, you were the obvious choice if I could get hold of you. And you're you're actually having your own little holiday, but not, not leaving the country. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. A, a staycation in the proper sense of the word, not just in the holidaying in the country that I live in state of the word. <laughs> but it's nice, right? It's nice to have a break, I'm sure. Yeah, it's good. I saw um, young fox and fallow deer on my little walk this afternoon. It's very nice. Nice, because you're a bit of a wildlife fan, aren't you? I know you uh, you do a little bit of keeping an eye on the wildlife in your back garden as well as further afield. It was a good walk for that. Good moths and butterflies and birds. It's very nice. Very nice. nice, good stuff. So who are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the offspring, and I hope we'll be able to bring Henry back in on it at some point for his answer to why he has managed to get into Green Day and Blink and some 41, but not the offspring, given how similar they are in style. So it'll be interesting to hear the answer to that. I don't understand his musical brain sometimes, although I guess mine is the same. There are bands that I should love, Pavement being one of them, that I just can't work out. So... Lots of people will have heard of The Offspring, but for those who haven't, who are they and where do they come from and all those kind of good facts that we like to give our listeners? All those good facts, yes. So they are led by Brian Holland, who is universally known as Dexter. Lead guitar is Kevin Noodles Wasserman. Kevin Noodles. Yeah. Greg Kay was the bassist for the majority of 25 years. I think he left in 2018-ish. They haven't had another album out since then, so I guess it doesn't really matter. Ron Welty was the drummer for the first decade or so and then was switched out for Pete Parada by the looks of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so they've, they've had a bit of a varied lineup for the time but there, but Noodles and uh, Dexter are the two who have seen it through. Which is, to be honest, fairly standard for almost any band that's managed to keep going for 25 odd years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that is probably fair enough. I'm sure I read somewhere, but I can't find it now that noodles was mainly part of the band because he was significantly older than the rest and could get them alcohol that is i mean that seems plausible doesn't it i mean it's a punk band beer punk it all goes hand in hand i will cut that out if it's not true so if you're listening to us then i've managed to find it and it is true I've definitely read that. Whether it's true is another question, but I've definitely read that. <laughs> I wonder whether there's an element of truth to it, but the band have leaned into it as a bit of mythology. Because it does sound like they were quite a, I don't want to say a party band, because that paints this picture of them being a bit reckless and just drinking hard and doing drugs and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know that that's true. I think because they were part of that California, very underground garage punk scene and when i say garage i don't mean the sound i mean the vibe Mm. they would do things like they'd do a a tour of the west coast but they'd be playing tiny little venues and sleeping on people's sofas and that just seemed to drag them into trouble 
because of the kind of people that they'd meet while they're on tour, the type of people that were like putting on those shows, they just seemed to get into scrapes. And so an, another one that's kind of, it's impressive that they've managed to push through that and stick it out almost. Yeah, to go from house party gigs to giant stadium venue gigs is a big long journey, but it's it's one they've made pretty successfully. And certainly the big stadium gigs look like they fill a big room with a big lot of sound. It, it works for them. Yep. Yeah, and they, I mean, they talk about being influenced by, obviously heavily by a lot of punk, the kind of Californian punk and US punk that was happening at the time. But they also talk about Tom Petty and Johnny Cash being big influences to the point where one of their members plays in a, a covers band called Petty Cash, <laughs> which is purely covers of Tom Petty and Johnny Cash. Yeah. And there's a lot of quite intricate guitar work hidden in all the noise, which mm. is one of the reasons I like it, I think. There's hooks, and they use, they, they repeat hooks. So there's, there's links you'll hear from earlier albums that crop up again in later songs in later albums. And I don't think that's entirely down to, we found a good sound, let's just use it because it's easier than writing new good sounds. It is genuinely like, you know, we're linking back to the tone and the attitude and the message of the previous song. So yep. why not hook in that little riff in the chorus? It's it's sort of a musical nod to your earlier career. And I don't think it's ever done in a way that's like, oh, we're just going to take this exact same track and basically just rework it a little bit because we're lazy. Like you say, it's it's more of that acknowledgement of their career I've just said what you said, but back to you. I don't know why I've bothered doing that. But yes, what you said, agreed. I thought it was just demonstrating you're listening and that's important, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing I have to raise is that you've you've picked the wrong album. Is there a, such a thing as the wrong album? Okay, maybe not the wrong album, but an album that most people wouldn't pick if they were picking an Offspring album to, to talk about. Wh- which one have you brought to the table? I've picked Conspiracy of One. And I've picked Conspiracy of One because it was the first album of theirs that I heard in 2000, I guess, just after it came out. So a friend introduced me to it. And it was the first album, the first band that grabbed me and said, this is something I want to listen to. It was the first thing I ran out and bought and listened to endlessly Mm -hmm. until I had it memorized, which never takes very long with me, but that's not a thing. So I guess it has a special place in my heart because it was... The first music that wasn't given to me by parents or friends, it was something that I wanted and brought into my life and kind of subsequently went backwards through the back catalogue and then stayed with them forwards through all the rest of their stuff. Because they formed mm-hmm. in 84 and I was two yeah. in 84, so I can be forgiven for being a slightly late adopter, I think. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Or not question, that's an interesting point because... Most people don't think about them as being an 80s band because in the UK, really, they mostly came to light with Pretty Fly for a White Guy, which is the track that everyone knows. But I always think of as being one of the weakest tracks they ever released, certainly from my my perspective. I'm, I'm with you on that. There, there, there's a tendency in the kind of middle period, around the kind of mid-90s to mid-2000s, where there's a track on each album, which is sort of a gateway track to easing people who aren't into the heavier end of their spectrum of music. So it, it's it's the single that sells to people who aren't actually Offspring fans. And then the rest yep. of the album is more like the pop punk stuff that you'd expect. Right. And I do think it hit a bit of a a musical nerve at the time. It sort of 
captured a bit of that spirit of fun but rebellious that was around in music at that time it just isn't what the rest of the album sounds like yeah absolutely and there's a good sense of humor running throughout most of the albums right um in some songs or another and i think that that falls into that sort of category of uh you know it's making a slightly political is the wrong word for this one it's making a, (laughs) a sociological point in just poking a little bit of fun at it yeah absolutely and and that you're right that is something that they do very well is that political social commentary within their music but also reminding themselves not to take themselves too seriously because i'm a massive fan of americana that's where i came into it but not because of that track because of other things that i'd heard so what really hooked you into Conspiracy of One? Were there particular tracks? I think it was the it was the overall drive of the album and songs like Living in Chaos and Vultures and just the kind of, it's kind of angsty and longing for a better world to live in, but doing so in a really up-tempo, I was going to say upbeat, but upbeat's definitely not right, up-tempo mm-hmm. uh, fashion, you know, it's it's driving to get to that new new world that you want. For me, that's something that Americana and Conspiracy of One have a lot in common. And Conspiracy of One gets accused of being a ripoff of themselves. So it's Americana light. It's the same album. You've just done the same tricks over again. And I think there's a certain element of truth to that. But I do think if they'd never released anything before Conspiracy of One, it would be considered an excellent album. Yeah, I think there's a consistent offspring essence throughout the majority of what they put out to be honest there's not many tracks you could pick up any of the albums that you would say you'd have difficulty identifying some of the earliest stuff is more raw i guess and it's more kind of angry political there's less of the lighter humorous tone so the very earliest album you might struggle to pick some of those nuances off but i think as it goes through it it's it's got a consistent thread through it. You have to be honest, I haven't really listened to much of the early stuff. Even Smash, I've not really got into that much. You said you went back through the back catalogue. Do you have specific songs or albums that have become more of the kind of part of your offspring listening? Yeah, I'd say I I listen to Ignition Smash a lot because there's some really good tracks on there. So Ignition was in 92. Mm -hmm. Dirty Magic's on that, the original version. They re-released that as a like a 25-year celebration on the on Days Go By album. And LAPD's on that, which is a song about police brutality and picking on minorities, which is as true now as it ever was then, but it's a pretty powerful track. It's funny, isn't it? Because that's early 90s, and you think, well, we all thought things have moved on from there, and they haven't really... We talked about the Chili Peppers a few episodes back and Power of Equality is the opening track on that. And that, again, is all about the LA riots and how he saw them as being not a problem from the riot perspective, but from the police brutality that had triggered it perspective. And so you've got these musicians and artists picking on that stuff, but we're just going around in circles at this point, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. It's, you know... Nothing changes, but it's all the same. It's an offspring lyric. Right. <laughs> Which track's that? I think the tr- I think the title's way down the line from Ixnay on the Hombre. Nice. Yeah, it's one of the weirder albums. It was the second one I bought, and it almost put me off going back and getting more. Really? Until I heard Come Out and Play 
from Smash, which is just a fantastic track, and that that dragged me back to go back through the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I haven't really listened to those albums nearly as much. I think there was an element of I listened to Americana and absolutely loved it, and listened to Conspiracy of One and went, it's sort of more of the same, and then moved on to other things without really giving the earlier albums that much credit, but people who are true big offspring fans love those earlier albums it's those three albums across the 90s that are really the big ones for them yeah i think that's fair and then as you go forward they've kind of spread out so you know you're looking at 2003 2008 2012 which kind of makes Mm -hmm. sense as you you know if you've been together as a band for 25 years you're gonna run out of ideas i guess you know you can pick and choose the the best stuff that you're pulling together there's no pressure on it they're probably doing a lot of touring around then as well, I guess. Right, and they're not a band that is afraid to acknowledge those past successes. There are certain bands where they don't really want to play the old stuff, they don't want to acknowledge the old stuff, they think their latest stuff is all their best stuff, but actually most fans love their early stuff. The Offspring will play Pretty Fly at every gig that they do because they know the fans love it and they're perfectly happy to pander to the fans. Is probably the wrong way to put it, but... They enjoy playing it and the fans enjoy hearing it, so why not? Yeah, they don't seem to have got to a position where they focus solely on the newer stuff at the new end of the spectrum. It does seem like they'll play whatever the favourites are from the whole of the back catalogue, and why not? Right. I saw Idlewild twice in a very short space of time, and one of them they were headlining at UEA Main Lake Hall, I think it was. And uh, so, yeah, so they were headlining and, and they played... A, big spread of their stuff across the four albums that they got out at the time and then i saw them supporting rem and they focus almost exclusively on the most recent album which is very rem like so it's interesting to see the different ways you place a set depending on where you are in the bill yeah i think the biggest difference i've tended to see with bands is the difference between a headline gig and a festival set where the headline gig will tend to be whatever album they're promoting on that tour will be probably five or six songs from that album and the rest will be, you know, a couple from the previous album, one or two from... But it depends on how big their back catalogue is, but it will tend to be a bit more niche because they know that the people that are there are massive fans and so they'll play things that they know the fans will appreciate rather than necessarily all the most popular stuff. Whereas at a festival set, you'll often get a greatest hits rundown unless it's like Henry said, Bob Dylan, where he just played everything that wasn't. And I've seen REM do, I think it was their 2003 Glastonbury set where half of that was like some of the obscure stuff from the late eighties because they decided to play that, even though they're playing a headline set at Glastonbury. I guess when you're REM, you can just do that shit, right? Yeah. It's not like you're going to not ask us back again, is it? So, uh, you know. No, but for fans who are sort of casual, and love the love the REM stuff that's famous, that's always quite disappointing because you sort of just want to see a greatest hits. And I always think that if you're a massive band, you should just do the hits. I saw the Stones at Isle of Wight Festival and they just cranked out the hits. And it was great. It wasn't an edgy, raw emotion-led set. It was just fun. But that's what everyone wanted. Yeah. Because no one there's a massive, hardcore Stones fan that wants to hear, like seven tracks from their 1967 album or whatever. (laughs) One thing I should drag you back to is we didn't really cover off what, what the offspring sound like. 
Um, and so I think we should touch on the fact that you've mentioned emo, you've mentioned driven, but really they are pop punk, but with that kind of political and emotive edge to it is how I would put it. Yeah, and it, and it kind of edges on Scar a little bit in places as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. They've done some interesting stuff with, I guess, Latino groups in the area they were formed and grew up in, and there's a really good track called The Hui on the end of, I think that's on the end of Conspiracy, which is with Hawaiian natives. And that, that sort of stuff influences the style as well, which is good. Yeah, and I like it when bands bring in musicians to do that stuff rather than just doing it themselves and not really giving anyone credit for the style. Yeah, and I should correct myself to who is on Splint and not on Conspiracy. That's all right. I want to bring us back a little bit to Conspiracy of One. You mentioned a couple of tracks on there. Are there specific other tracks that you think people should listen to that will grab them in? Yeah, there's there's, there's the odd track that crops up on each album, which is a really emotional one that's kind of off the kind of angry driving tone of a lot of the stuff and that one often stands out they're good at that and it goes under the radar because that's not mm-hmm. what they're really known for so there's gone away on Ixney on the hombre which is a, is a fantastic track for that the one on conspiracy is called denial revisited and it's about a guy who's been dumped and can't come to terms with it essentially yeah. and when i was listening to that aged 18 just after my first breakup and uh, feeling a little bit kind of sorry for myself and self-absorbed. It hit me really, really hard. It stayed with me from there. And it's one of those, when you're in a happy place and you're you're just kind of relaxing and, and enjoying the feeling of being in a happy place, there's a little thing at the back of the mind that goes, do you remember when you were 18 and you were a self-indulgent little pillar? How embarrassing that was. Just shatters <laughs> that happy place. That's just kind of what takes me back to it. Yeah, yeah, I... I... I'm with you on the Offspring's ability to do not just full-on... I mean, No Breaks is the name of a song, but it also is how I feel about a lot of their style and their their musicality, particularly on Americana and Conspiracy of One, where it almost feels like the whole song has just been released from the top of a hill and is just hurtling with no breaks faster and faster and faster down that hill yeah no breaks does it really well the kids aren't all right does it really well have you ever does it really well there's there's a bunch of those but you're right about the slower stuff as well so pay the man on there doesn't sound like the offspring it does but it's not their style but it's brilliant it's a really great tune Mm. and ridiculously long it's another one of those eight minute plus nonsense indulgent things it's just brilliant yes there's a song on rise and fall rage and grace called christy are you doing okay and that's a whole thing looking back at well i don't know whether it's a real person or a fictional person but it's looking back at someone they knew growing up and saying i didn't understand what i could see at the time and i should have supported you more and i'm sorry that i didn't support you more essentially it's a really emotional piece it's funny because they hit on that a number of times the kids aren't right hits that same theme of we all thought we were going to be great growing up we all thought life was easy and now we're all hitting like early to mid 20s and people's lives are just going down the shitter in ways that we never expected to happen to us Mm. and they're great on those themes they're really good at like exploring that stuff in a way that's relatable and you wouldn't think of it if you just listen to the kind of popular tracks the the singles and stuff but the very Mm -hmm. first song 
they released in 1989. It's called Jennifer Lost the War. And the, the first line, Jennifer Lost the War today, you'll find her burned and raped. Through it all, she must have wondered, what have I done? But nobody really cares today. The world's a busy place. Guess she must have really sinned now. And that's a very heavy thing to start your very first album with. Yeah. And also immediately getting into that, we're poking at American society. We're poking at this reverence on religion, but not really adhering to those religious principles and all that sort of stuff. It's it's a really heavy hit to start off with. Yeah. So when they pick that up in other songs throughout the other albums, it's not a surprise if you've been with it from the start or at least gone back to the start to understand it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things with The Offspring, that they are almost dismissed a little bit as being this cheesy pop-punk band by people who haven't really listened to the themes and the lyrics, and I always think that's unfair. You don't do yourself any favours with some of the singles you release as well, so (laughs) the, the most recent album has a track on it called California Cruising brackets bumping in my trunk close brackets and you can tell by my tone of voice (laughs) how i feel about that track now i'm kind of hoping it's a spoof rather than a genuine thing that they're proud of making and if it's a spoof it's one of those spoofs that's got a little bit too close to the source material and stopped not being quite been funny for me but you know maybe it is a genuine kind of oh yeah this is trash and popular in the clubs and we need to make our money that way so let's make a bit of money that way Fine, whatever. You've given me 10 good tracks. The problem with that stuff always is it's funny if you're on board with them making that joke. The problem is they almost inevitably attract people who have missed the irony. And I'm thinking Mm. specifically here of things like Ali G, who I'm sure you'll remember. Absolutely. Who was designed as a character that both mocked the middle-class white kid who's trying to be ghetto and also flummoxed politicians on the 11 o'clock show, which was brilliant, cult brilliance in in the, what, mid to late 90s? The problem is it spawned this whole massive group of middle-class white kids who thought that Ali G was some kind of hero and god to them and didn't realise the irony at all. Yeah, there's a song on Ixnay called Cool to Hate, which is poking fun at that everything's rubbish sort of. Right. It's trendy to hate on everything culture. And I remember listening to that and my mum walking past my bedroom door and going, well, this is a terrible attitude for you, for you to be listening to. I don't know why you listen to this sort of trash. It's like, well, they're poking fun at that. And there's a really excellent video of um, the bass player Noodles doing it as like a spoken word Shatner version of Call to Hate, which I really enjoy. Amazing. Uh, so good. I love I love stuff like that where bands and go back to the fact that the offspring do not take themselves too seriously. They've got serious stuff to say, but they're perfectly happy to like take the piss out of themselves as well and do stuff very tongue in cheek. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've sort of kept with them and listened to their new albums. What do you think about those albums? Do you are they an evolution of the sound or is it, you know, just stuff that you've listened to less than the earlier offspring work? I think it's more of a similar style. It's moved with how pop music has moved, and you can kind of feel that influence on it as it goes forwards. It's retained the sense of humour. It's retained the socio-political campaign sort of songs. You know, they still have a good half an album of different songs saying 
this is what we think is wrong with the world and this is how we think we should be fixing it. And that sort of right. stuff still means every album I've bought I enjoyed and gets played on a fairly regular basis. There's the odd skippable song on every track. And you know, I hear some people say, you know, the real pinnacle best bands are, songs, are bands that you'll never have a skippable track on there. And we've talked already about, well, you know, they maybe have a attract to draw in people from outside the core audience and that's the one that tends to be like yeah I'll just I'll, i can gloss over that and come on to back into the core of what i really like you know i don't necessarily agree that great bands can't have those tracks i mean the beatles white album is 50 percent nonsense <laughs> and i don't think anyone would say that that's not a great album it's just that they didn't edit themselves in a way that they did for the others or at least not as much I think that consistency in terms, not necessarily in terms of consistency of sound, but consistently being able to create new great albums that you enjoy as much is more of a sign for me of a really great band. Whether that is a Radiohead style of constantly evolving your music to something new, or whether it's like The Offspring are, sticking with what works for you but continuing to make stuff that is exciting and interesting within the scope of that musical sound mm, absolutely and so, so it's fair to say the most recent album has 12 tracks on it 10 of which i love so it's not dropped off much right and that's awesome so from the perspective of them being you know an american we'll call them a pop punk band has that brought you into other music of that genre or similar genres uh, that you've really enjoyed? Yeah, so it was the gateway to Green Day, Blink-182, Sum 41, that sort of stuff. The sort of stuff we were cruising around in my friend Bob's punto to pub quizzes, listening to it blaring out the windows, all that sort of thing. I it, love it, that. It good times. I love the fact that Americans would have been listening to these in like banged up classic 1950s, 60s, 70s American cars. And we're like, yeah, it's the fit punto. That's, that's what we yeah. were rocking it in. The Punto, the Yaris, and the Cinquecento were our uh, cruising appeals. <sighs> Cinquecentos, I'd forgotten about those. You can you imagine trying to get those through a, like an EU crash safety thing now? Horrific. I mean, the whole thing crumples on impact, doesn't it? The whole thing is one big crumple zone. It's basically a shoebox with wheels on the air. Yeah, pretty much. And like an 800cc engine, which is hilariously small. <laughs> <laughs> was it the Cinquecento that they used for the in-betweeners? Yes, I think it was. Was it yellow with a red door once he'd had the door knocked off? It was classic. Brilliant. Love that. So good. I think I'm the same. I don't know that it was necessarily as much of a gateway, but Americana certainly for me was an album that cemented my love of high-paced, in-your-face American punk and punk pop type sounds. Definitely a massive, massive band for me over the years i don't know that i've explored their back catalogue to nearly the same depth but americana is an album that i will just stick on probably a dozen times in any given calendar year if you enjoy americana you'll enjoy ignition and smash i think the first one self-titled because the hombre is slightly weird so they're less accessible but not inaccessible have you ever seen them live I've never seen them live. I bottled out of going to Brixton on my own to see them once. That's the closest I've come. Oh, I bet that would have been fun. I regret it now, but I was like, I know. I was new to the southeast. Everything was big and scary and I didn't enjoy it. And Brixton. Well, exactly. You know, it's got this reputation. It does. I mean, it was sort of fair. It depends when you were 
planning on going to the academy, but it is just around the corner from the station, so you can run away easily enough. <laughs> I am quite fast. I'd be all right. Yeah. Well, I was in my 20s, less so these days. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, I I have to say I haven't seen them live either, and I don't know that I've really looked at, certainly not gigs, and I haven't had any festivals. I know they've played, maybe they played Reading or Leeds when I was there. I can't remember. I'll have to check. I would have been drunk, obviously, at the time. <laughs> That's the problem with Reading and Leeds. Like, there are probably across three festivals a good two or three evenings where I either was bar staffing and couldn't get away or was too drunk to remember what happened. So it could have been either of those while they were playing. Mm. I can see how that could happen. I've have stewarded at Leeds. Ah, nice. The Oxfam stewarding back in the day. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's always fun. Again, you just don't know what shifts you're going to get. So sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. I remember being in a big field, watching a big fight start and some police were there as well. And they were like, should we intervene or something? They'll, they'll get tired and then we'll intervene. <laughs> Let them wear themselves out a so bit. Just kind of watch for a bit and then, uh, yeah. If, if anyone's down on the floor getting kicked, then you intervene. Right. That's not okay. They're just swinging at each other and pushing about, and you can leave that. They'll get tired. They're probably also just doing it for a bit of a laugh because they're about 16 or 17 years old, which 90% exactly. of Reading and Leeds punters <laughs> it's are. It's horseplay. Yeah, exactly. They're just yeah. having fun. They don't, if, if you went and broke it up, there wouldn't be two or three that would be grateful for it. They'd all be pissed off that you broke up their little fun fight. <laughs> The best stewarding experience I had, I say best, best in inverted commas, most entertaining right. was party in the park in Bingley, I think it was, or near Bradford. And it was S Club 7 headlining, I oh, think. God. And they, the, the, the supervisors took us aside and went, so we've got some people going around pickpocketing. So if you could look out for them and just kind of follow them around and make it obvious that you're following them around, they'll leave. It's like, well, how am I going to know? It's like, well, it's S Club 7. So... There'll be the 17-year-old in the leather jacket who's taller than the rest of the crowd. So just, you know, you'll pick him out. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I never did that one. Reading and Leeds, for me, I think by the time I was 23, I felt way, way too old to do Reading and Leeds anymore. So I stopped. Plus, the opportunities dried up for student bar staffing once you're no longer a student. Mm. Anyway, random asides on festivals. Yeah, I think we've covered all of our usual angles. So thanks for stepping in, Pat. It's been fun having you on. Yeah, it's been good to catch up. Where can people find you if they want to go and check out your social medias? People can find me at uh, Rattius under Johansson on Twitter or at Recall underscore Vinyl for the band Twitter. If you didn't listen to the last episode, Pat's got a band. They do covers. Hire them for your wedding, birthday, bar mitzvah, whatever. Whatever socially distanced party you intend to have will be yeah. uh, available for in the southeast. Big garden party if you've got a really big garden. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, mate. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm sure we will have you on again soon. Just just as soon as I can get my ass in gear and actually remember to invite people on for guest episodes. Sounds good. Have to pick another band. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.